Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 32 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, the 11th of September. First, I'll be talking to technology vendor Riverbeds, Asia, Pacific and Japan Network Channel Chief, John Milionis, who will talk about his company's survey showing how companies are finding remote work challenging, and he'll be giving advice on how to manage it. And then I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the market in the week ahead. But now, let's hear from John Milionis. John, Riverbed Technology is introducing a lot of remote working, and a lot of companies are moving towards it, but they still have issues connecting to it. Uh, what, what are your feelings about that? Yeah, um, of course, work from home is is prevalent now and, and thrust upon us uh, via COVID, Leon. And I think it's just exacerbated a trend that was already in occurrence. So, you know, many people... Pre-COVID enjoyed the flexibility of being able to work from home and, you know, have some sort of flexibility around their, uh, their working arrangements. But of course, uh, with COVID, you know, what we've seen globally and in Australia is uh, it becomes mandatory for, for many, uh, many employees. So uh, it is a trend. It's here to stay. Uh, it does it hold certain benefits, but also it, it, uh, it holds certain challenges for, for uh, organisations and, uh, and employers. So what are the issues that employers face moving across to us to remote work? Uh, look, it, uh, we've identified some of those. So Riverbed uh, has undertaken a, uh, 
a global study on the future of work uh, in response to the changes that COVID's uh, instituted and, and uh, you know, thrown upon business. And, and some of those findings uh, were quite insightful and specifically relating to Australia, we had uh, in excess of 100 respondents, Leon, to, uh, to our survey. And, and perhaps for, for wider uh, knowledge of your audience, uh, Riverbed's been around since 2004 and we work with uh, approximately uh, 92% of the world's top 2,000 organisations and uh, many of Australia's leading companies uh, in financial services, healthcare, government and so on. So, uh, you know, we've worked with uh, the world's major enterprises for, for a long time. Um, but look, some of those challenges really are around ensuring that uh, their workforce can be as productive at home as they were in the office. Uh, and certainly another one of the challenges is uh, security. So networks and, and uh, IT infrastructure was built around uh, a certain uh, landscape, most of us being you know, at work, at the office, in our principal place of, of work, and all of a sudden we're now at home and, and potentially that also outlines security risks. But you know, we, we have identified that you know, there, there were significant challenges around performance, so people having slow file downloads, uh, things like buffering, Competing with the kids, for example, uh, you know, mum and dad are trying to work and, and access their uh, their core business applications, whilst you know the youngsters are trying to home learn or are smashing YouTube or Fortnite and things like that. So, you know, the other thing that we found, Leon, which was uh, interesting, was that around about seventy odd percent, high seventies, weren't actually prepared to support work from home. So, in other words their business wasn't ready to um, allow everyone to be mobile and to be able to perform it uh, at their optimum. I, I've actually found this, uh, some issues, uh, for example, poor quality of video and poor quality of audio is quite an issue. Uh, look, it absolutely is because it sort of talks to the way that we work now. So, um, you know, in, in modern day workplaces, uh, there's probably a couple of key themes that we do. And one is we use a hell of a lot of video. Um, and the second is that we collaborate and we share a lot of things. So we're working on documents. We're sending a lot of um, documents and we're saying, hey, Leon, I've done my bit, or we're sharing in real time. We're working on presentations and things like that. So, uh, you know, the challenges around that have certainly been prevalent. It, it has a number of aspects to it. You know, it could be one of multiple things impacting on that, Leon, which suggests that visibility of the IT infrastructure is really critically important for business leaders. Because I guess, you know, when we're unable to perform at our optimum or where we do have issues around things like buffering or, or you know, slow video, slow files, etc., it does impact on the economics for any business. So, you know, having visibility as to why and being able to remediate that is, uh, you know, really important. It would actually create a lot of stress for a lot of employees because it's so different and, uh, look, uh, and that, that would be quite an issue wouldn't it? Uh, look it absolutely does I mean you know the, the best terminology I can equate it to is you know my daughters asked me you know what does Riverbed do and I said well girls um, you know do you ever get buffering on your applications and they said yeah dad we absolutely hate it it drives us crazy and you know we're all similar so you know when we do get buffering uh, it sends us into a bit of a downward negativity spiral so if we're sitting there waiting uh, you know, we, we want this real-time experience. And the challenge we've had is that, you know, often in our corporate uh, environment, we used to have that near real-time. Now we're at home and things are slower and we get frustrated. And then, you know, uh, we might go off and make a cup of tea, which means it impacts our productivity. Or we might get really frustrated and, and ring the IT help desk and they're trying to work out why. Or, you know, we just go off and do something else. So it's, it's a real challenge and it really does impact. It's surprisingly on you know, how much it impacts on employee productivity and the, uh, the cost of business, both in terms of, you know, top line, but also below the line, trying to work out why.
I would imagine it would particularly affect sales staff because uh, when you when you hit with that sort of stress, you would have a lot of difficulty engaging with customers. Yeah, indeed you would. So you know, we've probably all had the uh, the uh, example where you know we might uh, we might ring somewhere. Um, or we might have gone in a Medibank or we might have rung somewhere and I said, oh, look, I'm sorry, can you just wait a moment? Our system's a bit slow. So not only as a uh, consumer or customer of that organisation are we frustrated, but it frustrates the staff because if they're saying that on a daily basis and they're waiting and, and they can sense the customer frustration as well as their own, of course, it does, uh, it does cost business in multiple ways. Uh, both in net promoter score in, in terms of how we experience their service to us, but also in terms of the staff being frustrated and, and sometimes, you know, wearing the brunt of that. So how best can companies adjust to this? Uh, look, so there are certain technologies um, and, and it gets back to, um, I guess, the barriers to success for organisations. So, uh, you know, what we did find is, um, you know, COVID was obviously a phenomenon we, none of us saw coming and it led to this work from home scenario. And we weren't sure how long that was going to be. So really, you know, why Riverbed went and uh, surveyed our, uh, our customers around the world was to get an understanding as to how sort of a few months in to this in, uh, phenomenon, you know, how they're responding. And, you know, what we have found is that a lot of the things that COVID has uh, thrust upon business will be baked in going forward. So, for instance, in excess of 20% of businesses now see a significant number of their employees working from home full time. So that changes a lot of dynamics, you know, return on investment. What does the network look like? What are the barriers to success? Where does the business need to invest? Do they need to reallocate investments from, you know, what they thought six months ago would support their business and workforce to where they are today? And, and you know, some of those barriers involve the ability of, of giving their remote workers that, you know, office feel. So they can work at their optimum. They can do their work, you know, and be as efficient as possible. So things like um, improving performance, improving, uh, improving file downloads. There are solutions, for example, that Riverbed can provide. So, um, for instance, we can deploy a software agent which would sit on your laptop, Leon, and, you know, make many of your key applications perform a lot better. So they'd feel faster for you. They'd cut down the waiting time. But uh, certainly, you know, it, understanding where the problem is with the visibility is the first instance, and then you can remediate it. But, you know, it does really require a, a fundamental readjustment and reallocation of IT resources. It also requires a fundamental readjustment of mindset because I noticed that Glacian has just put out a blog post telling its employees that they can work remotely anywhere forever and there's no limit, you know. So there's no expectation that eventually they're going to come back. And maybe... This is now the permanent space of work and maybe companies have to get used to that. What's your view about that? Indeed. I mean, look, uh, you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks is obviously a very high-profile technologist as he's, uh, his co-CEO, Scott Farquhar, and, you know, Atlassian's a doyen of the Australian uh, tech ecosystem and, and they put out their edict. And, uh, you know, they've, I think the message for, uh, for business leaders is, uh, you know, when you see really progressive and aspirational companies like Atlassian say they will hire the best global talent uh, wherever that talent may be and that uh, that talent can work from anywhere, the, the next key question is that organisations have to be able to empower that talent to be able to perform. And so, you know, the challenge that that represents is something that has to be solved. And, you know, it is, it is you know, quite simple. I mean, technology is complex, but if we can simplify it, you know, there are probably three key variables um, that impact, you know, the performance of that talent. 
where is that talent located? So in other words, you know, where is that user located physically? You know, are they in Melbourne? Are they in Mumbai? Are they in regional Queensland? Are they in wherever, New Zealand, APAC? What are the applications they're trying to use? And we all use different applications. So, you know, we're using Office 365 and Salesforce and ServiceNow and Zoom. And, you know, a lot of um, organisations are still using things like SAP and, uh, you know, CAD and these sorts of things. So, you know, where are your users? What applications are they trying to access? And where are those application servers hosted? And once you triangulate that, you can start understanding and building your IT infrastructure and saying, well, hang on. If I've got a certain user that's trying to access this application, which is hosted in a very different part of the world, well, you know, I know that that user is going to have potentially performance issues. So I'm not actually setting that user up for success. So it really is having that visibility and understanding. And, and you know, that's kind of the, the triangulation that uh, I think simplifies it for business leaders. And you would probably need to train people to work remotely, wouldn't you? Yeah, indeed. Um, and of course, there's a, there's a lot of virtual learning and uh, not only do we have to train people to use the applications, um, you know, make sure. So, you know, one of the, the challenging things with, uh, with new hires is uh, the download of information. So in, in the pre-COVID world, you know, we might go to an office and we might get a lot of downloads from people, uh, could be implicit or explicit, you know, we might have files in the office but you know with COVID now most of that is done online so you know you're going to have employees and if we take the Atlassian case that are probably going to spend you know a good 30 to 60 days downloading tons and tons of new training material understanding their business and understanding how to work and what the business does and you know that has to be efficient because if that's slow and that's taking a long time um, and they're unable to sort of download these big documents it's going to, you know, it's going to set them off on the, on the wrong footing, I believe. So absolutely training is paramount. And, you know, that user experience that we talk about in IT is absolutely essential and more so for remote employees because you've joined a new business. It's hard enough, you know, you're, you're meeting your new teammates virtually. What you don't want to do is with all this download of info that you're trying to get through that, you know, that's a bit of a torturous process as well. Well, John, it'll be fascinating to watch and thank you very much for your insights. No, I'm sure a lot of people will be watching it very closely. Uh, thank, thank you. Thanks for hosting us and uh, stay safe, everybody, and good luck. And now let's hear from ComSec Chief Economist Craig James. Well, Craig James, what can we expect in the week ahead? Well, there's a fairly much an eclectic mix of uh, economic data and speeches coming out over the, the coming week. We've got data on residential property prices. We've got a speech by a Reserve Bank official. Reserve Bank comes out with a uh, quarterly bulletin. So there's a whole mishmash of you know, sort of figures and and uh, events that will be happening over the week. I think the standout event, you know, so it's pretty clear. The standout is uh, what's coming out on Thursday, September the 17th, which is the unemployment and the employment figures for the month of August. Now, clearly we look at, you know, sort of all the different parts of the component. We look at the unemployment rate, the employment data. We, we look at uh, the number of hours worked. But uh, I think if we look at the employment first, in July we had almost 115,000 jobs created. Previously in June we had over 228,000 jobs created. So we've had some really good job creation in the last couple of months. The unemployment rate has continued to edge its way higher and that's to be expected. We've got more people coming back from hibernation, coming back from outside the, the, the workforce or coming back for, from their, their homes back into their workplaces. Some of them are getting jobs, some aren't. And, and what we're likely to see over coming months is that unemployment rate rises as more people reconnect with their, their workplaces. So 
7.5% is the unemployment rate at the moment. It's likely to go higher from here. Ourselves at the Commonwealth Bank Group are looking for a peak in terms of the jobless rate around about uh, 9%. Uh, I know the official family, the Reserve Bank and Treasury, are looking for an unemployment rate uh, peaking somewhere close to 10%. Now, uh, I think if anything's happened over the last couple of months, we've been pleasantly surprised at the fact that the employment's been stronger than expected. The unemployment rate hasn't risen anywhere near the expectations. And then with that, of course, we can thank JobKeeper and JobSeeker. They've been you know, sort of fundamental in terms of keeping that unemployment rate down. So... Uh, as I say, we're expecting that unemployment rate to rise and peak uh, around about 9 to 10%. Well, hopefully we're wrong. And yes, in terms of the current environment, forecasting uh, is more of an art rather than a science. So hopefully this time around, the uh, less lofty expectations in terms of the jobless rate will turn out to, to, to be right. But that really is the standout event over the, the week with the employment figures coming out on Thursday. Uh, if we look to for the uh, number two in terms of uh, the weekly focus, um, I think it would have to be the minutes of the last Reserve Bank board meeting. That occurs on Tuesday. Uh, at the September 1 meeting, uh, what we had is the Reserve Bank cited to in, in, in extend and enhance the term funding facility. Uh, so they made certainly a decision at that time. We'll be looking at you know, the background for that decision in the minutes. What we'll also be looking for is um, any discussion on Victoria because we know that the Victorian lockdown is one of those uh, factors that's having a significant negative uh, feedback in terms of the, the, the national economic statistics. So we have seen what sort of complications the Reserve Bank sees in terms of what's happening in Victoria over on the overall situation. So those Reserve Bank board minutes, certainly something to watch out for on Tuesday. Uh, the jobless rate, you know, sort of uh, on Thursday really stands out. If I'm going to throw other events into the mix, the other two that we would focus on is the weekly consumer confidence report from ANZ Roy Morgan. That always comes out on a Tuesday, so that's down for Tuesday. The other thing that happens on Tuesday is uh, Commonwealth Bank will release its credit and debit card spending report, a weekly guide uh, to uh, spending across the economy. And also the Commonwealth Bank has got its household spending intention. So we get some really up-to-date data in terms of consumer confidence and also the way the consumers are spending. In the current environment, what has been you know, sort of quite remarkable is the, the more timely indicators that we do get. Even you know, so the, the coming week, we've got some early August data on overseas travel, which will be coming out from the Bureau of Statistics on Monday. And, and that's the, the beauty of the, the response by economists and by statisticians that we're getting much more timely indicators. So that helps um, policymakers and, and that helps government in terms of the, the planning of uh, the economy. In terms of the central bank, I read a report in Bloomberg today, a survey of economists saying that they're expecting the RBA will boost its bond buying program or cut interest rates further. What's your view of it? Well, I think the Reserve Bank has basically done enough. And I think the Reserve Bank has concluded that the last speech that we had from the Reserve Bank governor, he was fronting the parliamentary committee. And he, he was almost resigned to be able to say, look, the, the Reserve Bank's done enough for, for now. Uh, if we cut the interest rate in, in Australia from um, a quarter of 1% to, say, 10 basis points, at the end of the day, what, what is that really going to um, achieve? I certainly can't see that there'd be value in terms of doing that. I know that the Reserve Bank has ruled out negative interest rates as well. 
uh, we could increase the bond buying program. Yes, you know, so we could you know, so go down that route. But again, yes, yeah, so what's the purpose of it? Yes, you know, so what what problem are they trying to solve? We, what we do know is what's happening in the economy at the moment is that the recovery is underway. You know, it's going to be somewhat a staggered fashion yesterday over uh, coming months, but we do have a recovery that's happening in terms of the economy. We know that that is very, very clear by consumer spending. The last retail spending report uh, came out for, for July. What it showed was a 3.2% you know, increase in uh, retail spending with the annual rate sitting at 12%. Now, apart from the GST period, we haven't seen a faster rate of retail spending in 31 years. So I don't think there's the imperative for the Reserve Bank to actually need to do anything in the current environment. If there is the need for more stimulus, more support, more intervention in terms of the economy, I still think it's in the hands of government, particularly the federal government. And... um, uh, it'd have to be very, very much targeted at the area which is very much in need at the moment, and that's the Victorian economy. So I think that what the value in terms of the policymakers now, Reserve Bank should stay on the sidelines and we should have uh, the Victorian state government and also the federal government looking at what they can do to assist uh, businesses and individuals down in Victoria. Now, the Commonwealth Bank is forecasting that unemployment will peak at 9%. Over what period of time would that be? Well, we'd be looking for that by the end of this year or early next year. So certainly uh, we have got JobKeeper and JobSeeker, which uh, will be tailing off from September. We'll see uh, sort of scaling back. And um, really the scheme is only extended out to to March of next year. So late this year, early next year, um, I think is very much the, the focal point in terms of that jobless rate peaking. I suppose more more important is where we see things in, in the future. And if we look out, uh, use our crystal ball and look out to the end of 2021, we're still seeing the unemployment rate somewhere sitting around about 7, 7.5%. So we went into this crisis at unemployment rate just over 5%. Uh, even by the end of next year, we think that um, unemployment is going to be somewhat elevated. But uh, certainly... Um, the one thing that we have to stress, it could be a whole lot worse if we didn't have the JobKeeper and job seeker scheme. Indeed, and particularly when you look overseas, our GDP numbers, while they're appalling, are still a lot better than what we're seeing in other countries, like in the America and the UK. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, if you look at all the, the major developed countries around the world, um, I think really it's only uh, two of the Asian countries, South Korea and Taiwan, that basically had smaller downturn in terms of their economy in the June quarter. Now, of course, we, one of the exceptions to the rule is, is uh, China, but China was first into this crisis and first out. Uh, the June quarter figures, you know, sort of uh, not really uh, strictly uh, for, for comparison, uh, but um, Australia's done very well. And if you look outside Victoria in terms of the suppression of cases, you look at, you know, sort of places like uh, Queensland and South Australia and West Australia, even New South Wales, We've, the economies have achieved a lot of success or the governments have achieved a lot of success in terms of suppressing the, the, the virus and allowing people to get back to, to work. And I think in lo- many parts of Australia outside of Victoria, there is a much more, greater sense of normalcy you know, sort of happening uh, and probably you know, sort of surprising in terms of um, uh, the speed you know, so which it's occurred. So you would expect the recovery to pick up pace towards the end of the year? Yeah, well, we're looking for is in the September quarter, which we're currently in the July, August, September period, 
that we're looking for something like a small fall in terms of the GDP caused very much by the Victorian situation. So strength outside of uh, Victoria, Victoria breaking down the overall scene. So we've got um, a flat or a small negative for the September quarter, but the December quarter, we see things starting to pick up in the December quarter and through March, perhaps a growth rate of one and a half percent in December, perhaps another growth rate of around about one and a half percent in March. And then we start to track forward. Now, of course, predicting these things, forecasting these things is a very difficult uh, process because you can have a situation like we had in Victoria, the second wave. And the other on the more positive side is um, the treatments and the vaccine. Again, yes, they could complicate you know, some of the economic forecasting, but um, uh, overall, Victoria does look as though it's going down the right path. It has achieved success in terms of suppression. It has basically set out a roadmap out of, of the lockdown. And uh, I think once we get into December and the March quarter of the next year, we'll be looking at much more positive times. Well, Craig, James, thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure everyone will be taking all of that on board. Thank you. Not a problem at all. So what's happening in the news? Well, the chief executives of nine drug companies have pushed back against US President Donald Trump's quest for a coronavirus vaccine before the country's election day in November. The drug companies have publicly pledged not to seek regulatory approval for any vaccines before their safety and efficacy has been established in phase three clinical trials. The statement included a vow that the companies would only submit for approval or emergency use authorization after demonstrating safety and efficacy through a phase three clinical study that is designed and conducted to meet requirements of expert regulatory authorities such as FDA or the Food and Drug Administration. They also vowed to always make the safety and well-being of vaccinated individuals our top priority. And business conditions, profitability and expectations on employment have fallen in the first NAB business survey to include full stage four lockdown in Victoria. Business conditions fell six points in August, while COVID-19 restrictions were tightened to minus six index points, reversing most of the gains made in July. The deterioration conditions was driven by an 11-point decline in the employment index, a three-point fall in trading, a four-point fall in profitability, and a 10-point plunge in forward orders. All states saw declines in conditions except New South Wales, which is regarded as a gold standard for COVID-19 contact tracing. Overall, conditions remain most favourable in retail, followed by wholesale. Conditions are negative in all other industries, with mining, construction and recreation and personal services the weakest. Across the states, weakness was evident not just in Victoria. What's surprising was a relatively modest five-point decline in Victorian conditions, considering the stage four restrictions in Melbourne. Business conditions actually deteriorated further in Queensland, down 13 points, South Australia, down 10 points, and Tasmania, down 14 points. And the impact of Victoria's second lockdown has been similar from a jobs perspective to the first lockdown. Payrolls are down 7.9% compared with pre-crisis levels in the second lockdown, compared with an 8.8% decline in the first lockdown. It's important to note when assessing these figures that they are prone to upward revisions. The weekly results are never quite as bad as they first appeared. Nevertheless, policymakers would understandably be concerned by the recent slowdown in job creation, which suggests that the recovery from COVID-19 may take longer than first anticipated. At the industry level, the impact of COVID-19 continues to be concentrated in sectors such as hospitality and arts and recreation. While both these sectors have improved considerably once restrictions were lifted, the overall decline in payroll is still devastating for those employed in those sectors. Payrolls in accommodation and food services down 21% against pre-crisis levels, having improved 21% from its low in April, while arts and recreation down 14.3%. 
Some sectors have continued to deteriorate throughout the crisis, with the impact building over time. Payrolls in agriculture established a new crisis low in late August, while payrolls in construction are only slightly above their pre-crisis low. It is a reminder that while the impact of COVID-19 for some industries was largely due to the restrictions, for other industries, the impact has increased over time due to the broader recession. Some sectors continue to perform well from a jobs perspective. Four industries led by utilities and public administration have payrolls higher today than they were pre-crisis. Financial services and healthcare have also been reasonably strong performers given the circumstances. And the solid rebound in ANZ job ads in June and July, which saw more than half the pandemic losses recovered, did not continue into August, with just a 1.6% rise. With Victoria accounting for more than 26% of the nation's pre-pandemic employment, the Stage 4 restrictions in Melbourne and Stage 3 in regional Victoria have undoubtedly put the brakes on. Predictably, new SEEK job ads in Victoria have fallen, but SEEK also notes that the improvement in New South Wales ads has been sluggish compared with other parts of the country. This is consistent with weekly payroll data, which show Victorian jobs falling and New South Wales jobs coming to a standstill. Q4 is also looking worrying, given the amount of fiscal support for workers, businesses and households scheduled to be withdrawn, particularly with Victoria only gradually emerging from lockdowns. Over the long term, the government's key focus for the economic recovery will be employment growth. This will require tens of billions of dollars of additional spending. But the Westpac MI Consumer Index rebounded 18% in September to 93.8, with a 9.5% collapse to 79.5 in the previous month. And business leaders have accused the Andrews government of trying to eradicate COVID-19 in Victoria and refusing to listen to industries that have been operating safely after Premier Daniel Andrews revealed a reopening plan that will keep many businesses shut until late October. Most Victorian businesses have been under tight restrictions since mid-March, and with Stage 4 restrictions to continue for at least another fortnight, the state has been under one of the longest and hardest lockdowns of any region in the world. The stage reopening will allow for some business and people movement restrictions to be lifted on September the 28th, so long as Melbourne's average daily case count falls to between 30 and 50 in the prior fortnight. However, business executives pointed to the requirement that there be no new cases for 28 days, plus no active cases and no outbreaks of concern in other states before workers can return to the CBD office towers, as evidence the state was pursuing an elimination strategy. But billionaire businessman Anthony Pratt says both the Victorian and federal governments are doing a great job at managing the coronavirus pandemic overall, and the ultimate measure of the response is an Australian death toll much lower than overseas. The executive chairman of recycling and cardboard box manufacturing giant Visi also said he was comfortable with the roadmap released by the Victorian government on Sunday to guide the state out of the lockdown. I think Daniel Andrews is doing a great job. I think that Scott Morrison's doing a great job. I think everyone's doing the best they can in a very difficult environment. These are uncharted waters, and no one knows if this is a six-inch puddle or a six-mile puddle, he said. He said ongoing tensions in the Australian-China relationship and greater awareness of the employment and economic benefits from manufacturing on Australian shores would help generate a renaissance in Australian manufacturing, particularly food manufacturing. And the Andrews government has engaged a US tech giant to lift its COVID-19 contact tracing system into the digital age as the nation's most senior health official urged Victoria to have greater confidence that it could move safely out of lockdown. Under a data management system being installed within Victoria's health department by the Silicon Valley Group Salesforce, 
Automated text messages will alert health officials, infected people, and potentially their close contacts about positive tests, dramatically improving the speed of the process. The technology already supports contact tracing in Western Australia, South Australia and New Zealand. Victoria rejected an approach by Salesforce early in the pandemic. The company also made an unsuccessful pitch to the federal government to roll out a national contact tracing management system. An ANZ bank is putting some Melbourne postcodes under tougher scrutiny when it assesses mortgage applications as it prepares for a wave of property foreclosures next year when customers default on loans in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. Borrowers looking for more than $3 million to buy luxury properties in Melbourne are already being asked by ANZ to stump up at least a 30% deposit, and the bank is applying WA-style loan-to-value caps of 80% in some areas of the city, meaning a borrower would need at least 20% in equity before qualifying for a loan. And Australia's top banks are understood to have launched new divisions to handle companies impacted by COVID-19, ahead of what some anticipated to be a major fallout when pandemic-related government subsidies in place end early next year. Major Australian banks, including ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank and Westpac, have typically had bad bank units where businesses are placed when they're in distress or times of recession. However, while the bad bank units still exist, additional units have been created for companies that would typically be solid performing businesses if they'd not been brought to their knees from the COVID-19 pandemic. Examples of such cases include groups such as the listed travel agencies Flight Centre and Webjet, the country's national carrier Qantas and Sydney Airport. Other groups such as outdoor advertising companies like Ool Media also fit the bill, as do some retailers, shopping centre and office landlords and hospitality groups. It comes as a federal government this month announced it will extend until the end of the year insolvency relief measures which were put in place from March 2020 as part of the response to COVID-19 pandemic. The measures were due to expire on September the 25th and offered temporary relief for directors from any personal liability for trading while insolvent. And the coronavirus vaccine Australia has invested in has been dealt a major setback after researchers uncovered a suspected serious adverse reaction in a trial participant. The vaccine being developed by pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford is being tested at dozens of sites around the world. The stage 3 trial, the final stage before safety and efficacy data can be submitted to regulators for approval, has tens of thousands of participants. But the adverse reaction, which AstraZeneca says is an unexplained illness, is believed to have affected a single participant in the UK. A suspected serious adverse reaction means participant may require hospitalisation. It could result in a life-threatening illness or even death. Australia has ordered 30 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to be rolled out next year. The federal government has signed off on a $1.7 billion supply and production agreement for the vaccine. And Australian goods exports to China fell by more than 26% in August, taking total exports down by 7.5% over the year to US $75.7 billion. That's $103.9 billion Aussie, according to figures from the Customs General Administration in Beijing. The latest monthly figures from China show that imports from Australia were down by more than any other country in August. The figures, reported by Bloomberg and based on the latest Chinese customs data out on Monday, can vary from Australian Bureau of Statistics numbers. Chinese imports from Australia in August were down by 26.2% to $8.81 billion year on year in a month where total imports by China were down 0.5%. The numbers from Beijing come after data from the ABS showed that Australian goods exports to China in July were down by 16% on a year-to-year basis with a fall in experts on iron ore and coal. This was a turnaround for four months of strong export sales to China from March to June. And David Jones and the Country Road Group are the latest Australian retailers to reveal that they have underpaid their staff 
with the South African parent company of the two brands announcing its 7,000 plus workers were underpaid to the tune of $3.7 million. The error was discovered following an audit undertaken after identifying payment errors last year. The disclosure follows the publishing of an alarming Fair Work Ombudsman report that audited cafe, restaurants and retail sectors. It exposed the vast majority of businesses in Melbourne and Brisbane dining precincts as chronic underpayers. Some 84% of Melbourne's laneway eateries and 88% from Brisbane's West End breach workplace laws from 93 businesses the report audited, the report said. Most were either stiffing staff in penalty rates or underpaying minimum hourly rates. And S&P Global Ratings has downgraded a slew of AMP credit ratings, questioning the company's governance standards and betting that an upside scenario is unlikely in the next two years. S&P cut its long-term credit ratings from AMP Limited and AMP Group Holdings, AGHL, from BBB to BBB-, and the short-term ratings on AGHL from A-2 to A-3. AMP Bank's long-term ratings also dropped from triple B plus to triple B, and short-term ratings dropped to A minus two. AMP has been bruised by revelations that had promoted Bo Pahari to head AMP Capital, despite him copping a five hundred thousand dollar penalty in two thousand eighteen after settling a sexual harassment claim. Last month, AMP Chairman David Murray resigned following sustained shareholder pressure, along with AMP Capital Chairman John Fraser, while Mr. Pahari was sent back to his previous job. S&P questioned the company's governance standards and bet that an upside scenario is unlikely in the next two years. An Australian Associated Press, or AAP, has launched a $500,000 crowdfunding campaign in an attempt to diversify our revenue base and remain ahead of former new owner News Corp's newly created Newswire. Now a not-for-profit owned by a consortium of investors after News Corp and Nine pulled their funding from the Newswire, AAP said News Corp's newly launched competitor, the NCA Newswire, is a well-funded move that threatens AAP's unique role supplying independent content. The GoFundMe page has so far raised $3,270 from 23 donors, and AAP's new chief executive, Emma Cowdroy, said both reader and government support in these early weeks and months of of the resuscitated AMP are crucial to reach the much loftier goal of $500,000. The consortium of impact investors, fronted by former News Corp executive Peter Tonner, officially took over last month, ending 85 years of big media companies owning the Keith Murdoch-founded Newswire. And AGL Energy will offer customers a Netflix-like subscription for an electric car in the first initiative launched by its new AGL Next innovation arm, which will also increasingly expand in telco products. The business would bring together AGL's work to collaborate on and experiment with new ideas in line with the rapidly transforming energy market, said John Chambers, the power and gas supplier's new executive general manager, Future Business and Technology. The details of the electric vehicle subscription offer are to be released later this week, but are understood to involve an all-in flat subscription offer for a range of cars. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to New York marketing specialist Josh Meir, and he'll talk about the crisis facing many small businesses and give tips for helping your business stay afloat through marketing. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 